welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. We have been doing a series over the last few weeks, the last couple of months now, uh, in the book of Isaiah, and have slowly made our way through to uh, chapter 7. Um, over the next few weeks, uh, um, maybe by virtue of sort of where we're heading, and if you want to be prepared, if you'd read through to about chapter 12, um, over the next few weeks, we're going to get through to chapter 12, hopefully. Um, if you're thinking, my goodness, there's 66 chapters in Isaiah, and this guy is going at a snail's pace, um, I'll be collecting my pension by the time he's finished. Uh, for some of us, it's already too late. But uh, um, we, we will quicken our pace, okay? Um, I, um, I promise. So, but we're up to Isaiah chapter 7. Last week we, and the week before, we considered probably one of the seminal chapters in the book, The Call of Isaiah. And, uh, and so we saw a, a holy God, a humbled servant, and a hard message. Now we move into chapter 7, and I want to read uh, the first 17 verses of chapter 7 and then give you some sort of historical background for what transpires. So uh, you might like to read with me. During the time that Ahaz, son of Jotham, king, uh, son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and King Pekah, son of Remaliah of Israel, attacked Jerusalem. But the attacks sputtered out. When the Davidic government learned that Aram had joined forces with Ephraim, that is Israel, Ahaz and his people were badly shaken. They shook like trees in the wind. Then God told Isaiah, go and meet Ahaz, take your son Shia Jashub, which means a remnant will return with you. Meet him south of the city at the end of the aqueduct where it empties into the upper pool on the road to the public laundry. Tell him, listen, calm down, don't be afraid. Don't panic over these two burnt-out cases, Rezin of Aram and, and the son of Remaliah. They talk big, but there's nothing to them. Aram, along with Ephraim, son of Remaliah, have plotted to do you harm. They conspired against you, saying, let's go to war against Judah, dismember it, take it for ourselves, and set the son of Tabeel up as a puppet king over it. But God the Master says it won't happen. Nothing will come of it because the capital of Aram is Damascus and the king of Damascus is a mere man, Rezin. As for Ephraim, in 65 years it will be rubble, nothing left of it. The capital of Ephraim is Syria and the king of Syria is a mere son of Remaliah. If you don't take your stand in faith, you won't have a leg to stand on. God spoke again to Ahaz this time and he said, ask for a sign from your God, ask anything, be extravagant, ask for the moon. But Ahaz said, I'd never do that, I'd never make demands like that on God. So Isaiah told him, then listen to this government of David, it's bad enough that you make people tired with your pious, timid hypocrisies, but now you're making God tired. So the master is going to give you a sign anyway, watch for this. A girl who is presently a virgin will get pregnant. She will bear a son and name him Emmanuel, God with us. By the time the child is 12 years old, able to make moral decisions, the threat of war will be over. Relax, those two kings that have you so worried will be out of the picture. But also be warned, 
God will bring on you and your people and your government a judgment worse than anything since the time the kingdom split when Ephraim left Judah. The king of Assyria is coming. Now to understand this portion of scripture, the next couple of chapters, we really have to have some, some background. Between chapter 6 and chapter 7, there's a gap of 16 years. So well, how do you know that? Well, in chapter 6, King Uzziah dies. He's succeeded by his son Jotham. And 2 Kings 15 and verse 33 tells us that he reigns for 16 years and then is succeeded by his son Ahaz. So as this chapter starts, Ahaz is the king on the throne. So we can deduce that 16 years have gone by between these two chapters. We also see from two kings that Ahaz is a king quite different from his father and his grandfather. Two kings, chapter 16 and verse 2 through 4, tell us Ahaz did not follow the Lord as his ancestor David had. He was as wicked as the kings of Israel. He even killed his own son by offering him as a burnt sacrifice to the gods, following the heathen customs of the nations around Judah, nations that the Lord had destroyed when the people of Israel entered the land. He also sacrificed and burnt, burnt incense, uh, incense sorry, at the shrines on the hills and at the numerous altars in the groves of trees. So this guy is an incredibly wicked king. He's an idol worshiper, and that worship included child sacrifice. And if you remember, and this passage alludes to that, that God, one of the reasons God expelled the Canaanites in the very beginning was this horrendous practice of passing their own children through the fire. I think I said at the earliest, uh, in an earlier message that the tragedy is that when Israel went into Canaan, the intention was they would change it and it would become Israel. And Hosea comments on it and says they moved into Canaan and they became Canaan. Here's this king, an Israelite king, doing the very things that got the Canaanites kicked out of the land. So that's going on in the kingdom of Judah. On the international scene, things are unstable to say the least. Assyria has been the dominant nation in the region for nearly 500 years. It has been through a period of internal weakness due to some poor, weak leadership. However, a new king, King Tiglath-Pileser III, has come to the throne, and he is a very strong, very aggressive leader, and he sets about reestablishing Assyrian dominance throughout the region. The nations, the surrounding nations that had enjoyed the respite afforded by weak leadership weren't relishing the thought of Assyrian dominance being reasserted. So the kingdom above Judah, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, and their northern neighbors, Syria, had joined in an alliance to try and resist Assyria coming back down into the region. They approached the king of Judah, who is Ahaz, to join them. Ahaz, king of Judah, is disinclined to join this anti-Assyrian coalition. That provides a problem for Israel and Syria. They, if they ignore the southern kingdom of Judah uh, and, and start to fight Assyria, there's always the possibility that Judah, in order to ingratiate themselves with Assyria, might attack them from the south. 
And then this coalition would face war on two fronts, which would spell disaster. So they decide to take Judah out of the equation. They decide to launch a preemptive attack on Judah and replace Ahaz with a more friendly king with regard to their interests. The, the book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles, records this attack, and initially they have great success. In one battle, they killed 120,000 soldiers of Judah at one go. In, in this passage that we read, Isaiah 7, they have come now to lay siege to the capital city, Jerusalem, and seek to apply the killer blow in which will, uh, they will then be enabled to change the whole dynasty and, and have a, a united front against Assyria. The king of Judah, Ahaz, and his people are terrified. They've just lost 120,000 soldiers in battle. And verse 2 says, The hearts of the king and his people trembled with fear as trees of a forest shake in a storm. Now, motivated by this panic, motivated by this fear, Ahaz is contemplating a major policy decision. He is thinking of appealing directly to Assyria for help. Now, appealing to Assyria for help is probably the equivalent of a mouse asking a cat for help against another mouse. In such a situation, only the cat is going to win. And it's a decision motivated by short-term terror and panic that will have disastrous consequences and long-term effects for Judah. So Isaiah is sent by God to intersect Ahaz before he makes this fateful and foolish decision. And Ahaz is instructed by Isaiah. Isaiah says to him, don't call conspiracy everything that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one that you are to dread. So Isaiah says to Ahaz, basically, not don't fear, but rather, you should put your fear in the right thing, or rather, the right person. Ahaz is motivated by panic. He's about to embark on this disastrous course of action. And again, in verse 4, Isaiah says, Be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. Don't act out of fear and resort to military might or political cleverness to try and solve the issue that you're facing. When you put on your bifocals, I want to say to you, and I'll come back to this shortly, that this is a message that needs to be repeated as life is relentless in bringing circumstances against us that cause us to fear. Where we look in the face of that fear is crucial, and this is the lesson that this portion of Scripture is talking to us about. Isaiah says in Isaiah 28, 16, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not make haste or will not act hastily. They, they will not act out of panic and fear. And again in Isaiah 35, verse 4, Say to those that are of a fearful heart, Be strong. Do not fear, behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Now, this is a message that Ahaz desperately needs to hear. A psalm, actually, that's attributed to his dynastic father, David, could have, 
could have advised Ahaz has really wise, wisely in the face of the circumstances he's enduring if he had listened. Psalm 118 verses 8 to 9, David says, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Ahaz is about to put his trust in man. He's about to try and put his trust in Assyrian, uh, in Assyrian kings. Now, the two kings that are coming against Judah are Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, king of the northern kingdom of Israel. I, I find it interesting that David calls them the son of Tabeel and the son of Remaliah. Now, David is talking here in dynastic terms, the, the terms of a dynasty. He's talking about their father's father. These men are part of dynastic Households, But the point is, so is Ahaz. And in referring to these men in dynastic terms, Isaiah's trying to get Ahaz to think in the same kind of terms. Whose son are you, Ahaz? You are David's son. You are part of a dynasty that, re that relies on, that rests in divine promises. The key issue is, will you believe them? Will you trust them? So in addition to reminding Ahaz that he is the subject of divine promise, Isaiah then speaks directly to the threat that these two kings pose. He says, don't panic over these two burnt out cases. Rezin of Aram, the son of Remaliah, they talk big, but there's nothing to them. Aram, along with Ephraim, son of Remaliah, have plotted to do you harm. They've conspired against you saying, let's go to war against Judah, dismember it, take it for ourselves and set the son of Tabeel up as a puppet king over it. But God the master says it won't happen. Nothing will come of it because the capital of Aram is Damascus and the king of Damascus is a mere man resin. As for Ephraim, 65 years it'll be rubble, nothing left. So, so Isaiah is reminding Ahaz, first of all, that he is the subject of divine promises, and then he speaks a promise into this present circumstance. It's, it's not going to happen. And it finishes off, if you don't take your stand in faith, you won't have a leg to stand on. That's the way the message translates it. So Isaiah is saying, their plans will not be successful. They've come to destroy you, but in fact, it will be them that is destroyed. So Ahaz... Uh, Isaiah is seeking to move Ahaz from fear and unbelief to faith and trust. In verse 9, there's a kind of a play in the Hebrew that's not apparent in English translations. In the English translations, it basically says, if you don't believe, you will not be established. But the words belief and established are from the same Hebrew word. And it could read, unless you hold firm, you will not be made firm. Unless you hold firm in faith, you will not be made firm in life. Then he goes even further, and he says to Ahaz, God says to you, ask a sign of me, and I will give you a confirming sign that what I'm saying is true. Verse 10 and 11, ask for a sign from your God. Message translation says, ask anything, be, a, be extravagant, ask for the moon. But although Isaiah invites Ahaz to put God to the test, it is in fact Ahaz himself who's being tested. His response is interesting. Verse 12, I'd never do that. 
I will never make demands on God. Now, that sounds outwardly very pious. In fact, it wasn't. Now, I know that the Scripture does warn us of the sin of putting God to the test. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16 tells us not to do that. But what's happening, or what Deuteronomy is referring to, is not what Ahaz is facing. The sin that Deuteronomy is referring to is a, is a sin, actually, of unbelief. It's the sin, basically, of those who say, I won't believe unless God proves himself to me, and that he proves himself to me in a way that I approve of. In fact, that's the same kind of thing Jesus was referring to in Matthew 16 and verse 4, where he says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given to them. See, Jesus is basically saying there's no point in giving people a sign like this, since they would simply say, then that's not enough, give me another one, and then give me another one. Because no sign is sufficient for people who have already made their mind up. They've already determined what they think. And any sign that you gave to people like that wouldn't change their mind. All it would do is simply serve to increase their culpability. So there is a sin of asking for a sign. But there are times, however, that God actually invites people to ask a sign of him. We all know the story of Gideon's fleece, where Gideon put out a fleece and God played the game, as it were, and gave Gideon the sign that he needed. And then, of course, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, he says, bring your full tithe into the temple treasury so that there will be ample provision in my temple. Test me in this. And see if I don't open up heaven itself to you and pour out blessings beyond your wildest dreams. Try me out, God's saying. There is a testing that is actually a testing of faith. And Ahaz is invited by the prophet to test God. He refuses the sign that's proffered by God. And it's proof that in actual fact, this king has already made his mind up. He does not want to believe. He doesn't want evidence that will be contrary to what he has already determined to do. Where there's no faith, no evidence is welcome. You know what? The mind will refuse and perhaps even misunderstand whatever it is that the heart has previously rejected. There's no faith. He doesn't want evidence He's already determined what he's going to do. And he shrouds his unwillingness and unbelief in a false veil of piety. Oh, I would, I would never do that to God. Now, you might be listening and thinking, well, all that's interesting, Don, but basically, what on earth does that have to do with us here in Hamilton, here in the 21st century? Well, you know what? The problem that Ahaz faced isn't really that different to the kinds of problems you and I face, even though we are separated both geographically and in terms of millennia. The unchanging reality is that life comes along and faces us all with circumstances that, quite frankly, can be very, very frightening. A relationship breakup, a doctor's diagnosis, a child's foolish choice, a redundancy, a reversal in our financial situation. And suddenly we are facing circumstances that have the capacity to cause and generate real fear. The problem isn't that such things create anxiety. 
Isaiah didn't say to Ahaz, you shouldn't be even fearful. He was saying you should direct your fear properly. To not feel anxious about some of the things that life throws at us is, for most of us, quite frankly, unrealistic. The real issue is what do we do in the face of those circumstances? How do we react? Where, or rather, to whom do we turn? And so many people are like, uh, are like Ahaz, outwardly pious, outwardly religious, but inwardly we determine that there is help nearer at hand than God and his invisible, intangible promises. And so we, like Ahaz, turn to an Assyrian, an Egyptian, a Babylonian solution to our problems. We turn to the way the world, in its unbelief, faces these kinds of problems and circumstances, rather than trusting that God will work in them for our good. We put our trust in our ability to solve our own problems, and so often we take options that, while temporarily we know aren't necessarily within the framework of what God would ask for us, we justify by saying, well, as soon as I've got it sorted, I'll step back into where I know God you know, has directed my life to be lived. I don't know how many times over the years, pastorally, I have watched people make choices like that. I've watched people who have faced incredible times of financial strain and testing. And they have decided in the midst of that testing that they need to take options that will mean they have to stop being generous with their finances. They have to stop giving. They have to stop tithing. Temporarily, of course. We'll only do it temporarily. But we need to take this option to get things stable. Well, this is where Malachi comes in. He says, listen, trust me. Prove me in this and see if I will not open up the realm of heaven for you. And you know, I've watched again and again people who go out into that region to establish themselves financially before they come back into obedience lose what they sought again and again and again. And it's the whole idea of when Jesus says, listen, if you will sacrifice your life for my purposes, you'll see my goodness. If you seek to save your life by going your own way, seeking a Babylonian solution, you'll actually lose the very thing that you seek to save. Some of you may remember the book of Ruth, a man by the name of Elimelech, when he is crowded in by a famine, decides to leave the land of promise, a land, by the, by the way, in which God had said, if you stay there, Psalm 33, verse 18, I will bless you and keep you in famine. Well, Elimelech decides because of his children, both of whom it appears by virtue of what they were named were sickly children, he decides in order to save life, I need to go to Moab. And so he does. He stays longer than he intended to stay. And you've heard me say this a hundred times, but people who go into sin always find they stay longer than they intend to stay. It costs more than they intend to pay. It's the way it works, and they go out there to save something. The fascinating thing in that story is that both of those two children died in that land. We go into a Moab solution, a Babylonian solution, in this case an Assyrian solution, trying to save something, and in doing so, we violate God's precepts. Almost inevitably, you lose the very thing that you were seeking to save. God is saying, in this, trust me, trust me. I've watched so many times over the years people make 
foolish relational decisions, provoked by a fear that proved in the long term to be disastrous. I'm only 30, and I thought I'd be married by now. I thought I would have a family by now. I look around, and there's nobody in my church that I'm attracted to. What am I going to do? Now, there is that person at the office. They've shown real interest in me. They've asked me out, or I've asked them out, and they've indicated that they were willing to be asked out. And, and, you know, that could work. The only problem is they don't believe. But if I go out there short term, maybe I can lead them back. Maybe I can get them to come back with me. I, I, I wouldn't mind a dollar for every time I've heard that scenario worked out. I tell you what, I wouldn't have much of a mortgage left. They go out, and the very thing they went out there to, to, to get, they lost. You know, there's, a, there's an old, there's a, there's a very good reason for the old proverb that says, act in haste, repent at leisure. There's a reason for that proverb. I could introduce you to more people than you would care to meet who would tell you with great sorrow that waiting for God is a better course of action than the one they chose motivated by their fear. See, the question in these situations is, is God able? I mean, Maybe he's able, but is he interested? I mean, does he have my best interests at heart? Can I trust him in the face of this situation that is threatening to sink me? It's fascinating, but in Isaiah 36 through 38, we have the story of Hezekiah, who is Ahaz's son. He is facing the exact same dilemma as his father faced. Assyria, the very nation that Ahaz turned to and trusted in, has done what everybody who had a half a brain could see where they would do. They ate up the northern kingdom of Syria, they defeated the northern kingdom of Israel, and then they turned their sights on the southern kingdom of Judah. There's no way that they were going to stop. Once the cat has got one mouse and there's another one on offer, he is going to take it. And this is exactly what is happening. Assyria, the very nation that Ahaz turned to and trusted in in his moment of weakness, now stand at the gates of his son, Hezekiah, at the gates of Jerusalem set to engulf Hezekiah and his people. You know, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, you know, the short-term choices that we make today can often come back to haunt our children. We appeal to Assyria and it's our children that have to deal with the Assyrian nation. Again, I wouldn't mind a dollar for every young person that I have sat opposite to in my office, and they have said, you know, it was my father's pornography that opened the door to the bondage that I am now grappling with. Our failure sets up something for coming generations. By the way, our success does too. It's not just about you. You are not an island. In our, in our individualistic Western way of thinking, we think, you know, I get to make my choices, my kids get to make theirs, but it doesn't work like that. The choices we make dramatically affect them and shape them and limit sometimes the possibilities of the choices that they can make. Ahaz appeals to Assyria. Hezekiah has to deal with the implications of that appeal. 
as parents, you might be thinking, well, I can do this. My kids will get to make their own choices. You may well be setting their future in the choices that you are making. The battles that you are fighting don't weaken because they don't just concern you. They concern your lineage. A man of integrity, it says in the book of Proverbs, leaves an inheritance for his children. It's way more than just financial. It's in the way that you live your lives. It's in the choices that you make. It's in the ethos and culture of the family that you raise. The choices you make have a dramatic effect on your children, your grandchildren, and who knows down the line. So here's Hezekiah now facing the Assyrians that were invited in by his father. Isaiah 36, verse 1 to 2, it says, In the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lashish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launder's field. Now, you think, why is the Bible so specific about where exactly he stopped? Well, if you go back to chapter 7 and verse 3, Isaiah the prophet meets Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launder's field. We are talking about exactly the same piece of geography. That Ahaz is challenged by Isaiah to believe God, he doesn't. And on that same piece of geography, the Assyrian commander stands to issue his challenge to Jerusalem. A contrast, a conscious contrast is intended in these two stories. Where Ahaz failed in his unbelief, Hezekiah, to his great credit, puts his faith in Yahweh's ability to deliver. And if you know the story, you'll know that he sees God do that in a spectacular manner. The angel of the Lord came one night and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are dead the next morning. The very few remaining soldiers fled back to their homeland with their king, who is then murdered by one of his own sons. This seemingly invincible army is reduced overnight by the stroke of Yahweh to absolutely nothing. Trusting God. Trusting God in our less than desirable circumstances is absolutely an ongoing issue for every single one of us. We all face stuff that could make us shake in the wind like the trees in the same way that Ahaz and his people did. As I say, all it takes is a doctor's diagnosis, news from a spouse that you did not see coming, the divorce of children or a child making a foolish choice, a redundancy that you didn't see coming, a financial reversal. Suddenly we are facing circumstances that have the possibility of just turning us into anxious globs of jelly. And the choices that we face in those moments are the exact ones that Ahaz and Hezekiah faced. Who will you trust? Where will you turn? Will you go to the Babylonian, Egyptian, Assyrian, Moabite options? Will you decide, well, temporarily, I know that it's probably not the right thing to do, but, but temporarily, it seems, it seems like the best option except for the fact that God has given you another option, his promises. You are part, as, as Ahaz was, of a dynastic house, as it were. You, you have divine promises over you. Are you going to believe those promises? 
Are you going to trust them? Or is your faith just something that's good for calm days, but you know, when, when it's rough days, you need to take control of your life in a way that worldly people would be absolutely proud of? It's a decision that we face, if not day by day, week by week, and month by month. Who will you trust? Who will you fear? Isaiah finishes, and I will too, uh, by quoting a passage from Isaiah 50, uh, where Isaiah says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. But now all of you who light fires and provide yourself with flaming torches, go walk in the light of your fires and of the torches that you have set ablaze. This is what you will receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. There's a couple of key things about this passage. Number one, here's a person who fears the Lord, obeys the, is obedient, walking in obedience, and suddenly is in darkness. Now, that's a challenge for a lot of people because a lot of people have believed the myth that if they fear the Lord and obey his word, they'll never walk in darkness. Jesus never promised that. He never promised that life would be smooth, and if you would believe in him, and the more that you would believe in him, the smoother your life would be. He said life happens to us all. It rains on the just and the unjust. You know, was it Job said sparks fly upwards? Man's born to trouble his sparks fly upwards. Said this before today, but you know, we love to put verses on our fridges. I've never seen that verse on any fridge in any house that I've ever visited. <laughs> Those are the kind of verses we don't like to, to, to acknowledge, but that's the nature of life on a fallen planet. Darkness comes. Jesus never promised you wouldn't have times of difficulty and darkness. He said, in the midst of it, I'll be with you, and if you will trust me, these things not always will be worked out to your satisfaction even, but I will be with you in them, and you will walk through the darkness, you'll walk through the, the floods, they will not overflow you, you'll walk through the fire, you will not be burned. I don't think that means you'll never be troubled. I think that ultimately means his purpose will be worked in us. Now, I know in charismatic circles that, that might not necessarily be popular because the reality is many of us have been taught that if we obey God, we wouldn't have big trouble. And if it comes, it won't last long and he'll deliver us. I'm not so sure the Bible teaches that at all. It says in the middle of these circumstances that can be unbelievably anxiety-producing, trust me. And then he says, when you light a fire of your own making, when you turn to a Babylonian option, an Assyrian option, a Moabite option, you walk in the light of the fire that you create. And I'll tell you this, you'll be set on fire by your own fire. And you'll lie down in sorrow. We have two options in the midst of the challenges that we face. Our own resources or our trust in the dynastic promises of the house of David, of the greatest son of David to whom we belong, who says to you, I will be with you in the midst of this. And not only that, if you will trust me, I will take all of this and I will work it in some way that later you will see actually is beneficial. It's the challenge of faith. Uh, Aaron, if you'd come and bring your team. Um, I'm gonna invite you uh, to, to stand with me and um, work out our faith. Because I know that many of you in this congregation 
are facing circumstances like I outlined. Maybe not exactly the ones that I outlined, but ones that have phenomenal capacity produce deep anxiety. And you're struggling and thinking, what shall we do? What shall we do? I think one of the things that you do in the midst of it is you don't stop worshipping. You stand and you say, Lord, I don't understand the circumstances, I don't understand the way things have turned, but I trust you and I will not be turned in my worship from you. I will worship. I will bless the Lord no matter what I face in the midst of the circumstances. And at the end of the day, by your grace, I will still be found blessing your name. So will you stand with me and let's express our faith as we sing together with these guys. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.